Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, Attorney Kim Hegwood with Hegwood Law Group and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning and welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and my very special guest today is Kimberly Best. Good morning. Good morning to you, Kim. And uh, so I like that you put Kimberly and mine is Kim, so that way. <laughs> well, I can put Kim too, so we could get really confused here if we wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I have clients sometimes ask me, you know, well, what do you go by? I said, I answer to most anything. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, as long as I know you're talking to me, I'll usually answer. You know, so today we're going to talk about a fun topic because this occurs in my law practice mm. all the time. You know, today we're going to be talking about caring for aging parents when siblings disagree. And uh, and so I laugh and tell people it's usually the sibling that's not here that has the most to complain about. <laughs> and so uh, but but let's kind of, you know, based on, you know, your what you do. And um, and so let's let's talk about it, it uh, a little bit and have some fun today. And um, is it common for siblings to disagree in what you're finding when it comes to caring for an aging parent? That is a terrific question. So if you think of siblings' um, history, they start out probably disagreeing on just about everything. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that just carries on throughout life. So the roles that they have growing up, um, unless people intentionally try to change those, which some people do, um, they, they tend to carry those, including the disagreements. And, you know, oftentimes, Kim, um, the disagreement is not even really about the issue, uh, but about the history, the family history and the unresolved things behind the history. Now, in all fairness, taking care of an aging parent uh, brings challenges that no one's been prepared for. Uh, so it's a highly emotional time. There's so much decision making and there's so much at stake. And really, most of us don't do well when there's that much pressure. So there's also the added pressure. There's family history dynamics plus added pressure um, and and fear of, you know, the margin of error that that is involved with these decisions. So those combined, the answer is yes, it is common for siblings to disagree. Yeah, I knew the answer to that, but I really wanted to hear your experience. And so, and, um, well, it helps to know it's common because if you're stuck there and you feel like very often in life, things that we're stuck in, we think we're the only ones. And yeah. the odds are everybody else has experienced that at least once. So you're not alone. And that's a good starting point to know that you're not alone in this. Yeah. So you're a registered nurse. Yeah. And so, um, in taking care of uh, aging parents, mm -hmm. uh, when you have, uh, you know, families that are not on the same page, mm -hmm. um, in, in your experience, how is it affecting the seniors that's needing the care? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, so I don't practice as a nurse now, except as a voluntary. Um, what I am now is a mediator and work and a conflict manager. And I I do a lot of work with families that are in conflict around end of life decisions and just other decisions too. Um, it is so hard on everyone if we can't get on the same pages in caregiving. And I say that from the nursing standpoint, but the families know it, the patient knows it. Uh, it just makes a lot of bumps in the road that wouldn't be there if, um, 
we came into agreement. So I'm a big advocator for having the discussions ahead of time, uh, including um, what kind of healthcare decisions. It's going to be a new experience every day with new decisions every day. It is not a smooth road. Um, but helping people decide who they're going to be and how they're going to show up in this um, helps them make the decisions. And then knowing what the family member wants is critical because it takes the pressure off of you having to decide for them. You're honoring those wishes, whatever whatever they are. Yeah. And so I was fortunate taking care of my grandparents that I, uh, while I had family members that complained about how I was taking care of them, uh, they didn't intervene. So, you know, we, they still got, you know, the kind of care they wanted and, um, and, and got really good care. Um, but I can appreciate the, the family dynamics there. And so, you know, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback and everybody has an opinion and that's fair. Um, but to go easy on the person who's carrying the bulk of that weight, because I always say about second guessing, we never know what the outcome would be if we took another road. We assume it might be better. Oh, if only I'd have done that. But the truth is it could have been a lot worse if you'd have chosen that. So making the best of the decisions you make and being willing to pivot when those decisions aren't working. And Kim, here's what I say. Life is an experiment. Every, <laughs> every moment is one we've never been in before, right? And sometimes we'll get it right. And sometimes we're going to swing and miss. And it has to be okay to make those mistakes, uh, especially now. And they can be critical mistakes at this point. But if you're doing the best you can for the right reasons, sometimes, sometimes it's not going to work out the way you want it to. You pivot then. But it has to be okay to look at it that way. We're all trying. Yeah. I look at everything as a learning experience. Yeah. So that uh, I think for a mindset perspective, it works really well. And uh, so, so when should a family seek help? Like, when do they call you? When, when do you, would you want them to call you? <laughs> okay. Well, as an attorney, I'm sure you know this, you know, with conflict, like everything else, the sooner we can start working on it, the sooner we can keep the pile from getting so big. And most of the time, the families who come to me are the ones who the pile has been a lifetime pile of not able to communicate and you know poor handling of conflict and the truth is like we don't learn how to handle conflict well um, so we usually don't have the tools to do it right so um, in the hardest time is when we're trying to communicate so the sooner the better the sooner the better and and know that it's possible to untangle this stuff um, I tell people there's a lot of work on the front end, but there's relief on the back end as opposed to making the pile bigger. And I just want to say, Kim, too, that this, these decisions, these moments are our legacy, right? Yeah. Like they make or break entire families. Uh, they're critical moments and um, we can't take them back, you know? So I think I've not had families who regret um, trying to find a way to move forward together. And there's varying degrees of how that turns out, but it is better than the alternative. So tell our listeners, because I already know the answer, but tell our listeners the difference between mediation and counseling, because I yeah. think it would be helpful um, to them to get an idea of the differences. 
Yeah. So as a mediator, I also do conflict coaching because um, mediation, you know, is a facilitated discussion to help people come into agreement. And it is you get to decide your best outcome. Um, I help keep the space safe. Counseling spends a lot of time going back. Right. And in mediation, we have to. I do not disregard the past. It matters. But we're not trying to figure out exactly how someone came to be how they are. There's no diagnosis of mental illness. It is very forward thinking. So we have a problem to solve or problems to solve. And how do we solve those? And and in the process, people do learn conflict skills and communication skills. Um, but I say it's a systems design approach to problem solving um, and keeping that in a safe and productive way. And I want to say too, because mediation requires more than one person, in this system that is a family, it's why I do conflict coaching as well. If one person changes in the system, the system will change. We don't know how that will be, but you're not at the mercy of someone else. So maybe you just need help finding the empowerment, the um, the backup, the uh, encouragement, whatever you need in moving forward if you're dealing with difficult siblings. Um, you don't all have to come to the table necessarily. You getting help alone can be enough to make this easier for you. So let's let's look at some, uh, I'm one of those people I'm uh, I'm very, you know, very visual, you know, so I'm very practical and things. So how, um, Give us some examples of, you know, different situations maybe that uh, the listeners can kind of relate to, to kind of think the kind of triggers of, hey, we could really use somebody like her. Yeah, there's I have countless examples, but one that uh, one that touches my heart is, um, you know, the whole caregiving thing is is well, they all touch my heart, but this one is just stands out. I'm going to back up for a minute before I answer it like that, Kim. You know, the, the, in my book, which is coming up, I tell stories of, of, of families who haven't been able to do that and the horrors that happen. And then stories of people who have worked through their decisions and how they came out uh, at the end of that. But this one story I'm going to talk about is a gentleman who had a terminal uh, diagnosis. He'd been a football player, big guy, strong guy. Um, and now he has a diagnosis that's going to lead him into progressive paralysis and death. And his family and him was having difficulty um, knowing how to move forward. And um, he, he came to my office and he said, you know, don't know how long I have. Uh, I know there's things that I need to do. I don't know what they are. <clears throat> he said, um, but you know what? I've lived a good life. I'm good with God. I think I'm just going to wait to die. And I said, you know, that's an option. Because you never take away someone's, you know, option that they have on the table. And my job is to help create more options. I said, that is an option. But, you know, my dad did the same thing. I, I walked my dad through caregiving for 10 years. He lived with, with me um, until ultimately went to long term. And my dad said, you know, I'm not the strong person I was before. I'm just going to quit. And the problem was it took him 10 more years to die. So I said, you know, there are things that you can still accomplish. You're setting a role for your children. Um, you know, what loops do you have to close? It's your decision, but if you decide to do those things. So he did, we went through the process, had family discussions, and ultimately even met with hospice and helped make those arrangements. 
I might get a little choked up here because I'll never forget this. You know, we're sitting with hospice and this family, they underlined they had a great sense of humor, lots of family problems, but also able to laugh. And he's signing up for hospice and we've interviewed a couple people and his wife turns to him and he says, you know, you need to decide what you're going to leave for um, our three children. And he starts laughing. And uh, he starts laughing so much that he starts to choke and that they were afraid that that might be the, you know, how he ended his life eventually would be difficulty swallowing and choking. So he's he's coughing and everybody's just kind of sitting waiting for him and he's mischievous. He's up to something and he coughs out three cups of ashes because he wants to be cremated. And the family bursts into laughter because he's being dad and uh <laughs> I said to him, you know, if you die right now, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, But I left there going, this family is signing up for hospice and they're laughing, you know, and they're doing this because they've had the conversations. I have chills as I tell this. They had the difficult conversations. They made the decisions to live out the rest of their life the way they wanted to do it, the way he wanted to do it. And for that, in this moment, while it hurt, his daughter was crying, they were also able to laugh. And to me, that spoke to the power of being brave enough to say, we have problems that we can't resolve and we need help. Yeah, definitely. And so that I can appreciate. So you mentioned briefly uh, your book. Let's talk about that. It's uh, How to Live Forever, a guide to writing the final chapter of your life story. So tell us about it. Uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, I, as a nurse, I worked in every critical care unit there was, and I worked in trauma, and um, I ended my career with six years in the emergency department. And the heartbreaking thing was um, seeing people, patients come in uh, with uh, problems that um, families hadn't talked about how to address end of life, how much treatment to do. Um, and honestly, patients were being tortured to be kept alive when in reality they were dying. And the beautiful thing about medicine is that we live longer, but the side effect of that, because everything has a price, is that it is taking longer and it's harder to die, right? Yeah. So people are suffering more. So families in thinking that everyone should live forever <laughs> are um, literally putting people through hell. And having these discussions, figuring out what, how you define your quality of life, at what point do you want to keep fighting, what the alternatives to your treatment are, um, these are things that were heartbreaking as a nurse to watch. So after leaving my nursing career and going into mediation, this book was a culmination about first the legal decisions that help are helpful to families and you to have and the consequences for not having those. I'm not an attorney. So I did have a um, pretty renowned, very renowned um, elder um, ACR member attorney, the leader of the ACR elder committee um, helped me um, do that part of the book. And then I talked about, let's see, the healthcare decisions, which I'm passionate about, questions to ask moving through that, even discussing um, your end of life uh, party or funeral, how to plan for that. And the whole premise is your life is your story and your story is your legacy. And every moment 
matters. And we plan for so much of our lives, but we don't plan for the end because it's been hard to talk about these things. I mean, I talk about it a lot, talking about my book and people are like, oh yeah, no one wants to talk about the fact we're going to die. Well, we are going to die. So mm -hmm. let's do it as well as we can, right? So, so our ending of our story reflects the beauty that was through our whole story and is the ending that we want to choose. And then at the end of that, I include relationships, which at the end of our lives, at the end of all of the pollings done and the studies done, the relationships matter the most. So maybe in the decision-making process, it is about building bridges in some of those relationships too. I wanna to say real quick, Kim, we kind of live right now in a culture where we fire people if we don't get along with them, that's my term. There's a huge uprise in family estrangement, right? But now we're coming to a place where people are ending their lives and there's no one left in their lives because we haven't built bridges. We've just quit uh, because we haven't learned how. So um, my last chapter is on mediation and how mediation uh, can be a tool for building those bridges and making better decisions. And throughout the book, there is um, tools and prompts for writing your story, leaving your story as your legacy too. Perfect. And so, uh, so Kim, you have a website, right? I do. Yes. And um, so and that's how they can get information about you and the book and everything there. Correct. That is correct. The book is available just about everywhere. And um, I do have a free PDF on my website too, for groups. Um, sometimes there's been like book study or book club things on it. So there's a guide for it on that as well. If you want to reach out to me with questions, uh, you know, I, I really am here to help. This matters to me. Um, I think the more we talk about these things, the better outcomes we can have. So please feel free to reach out. Yeah, I can appreciate that. We've been talking about what to do with my mother since mm. my kids were little, and she's the one bringing up the subject. So we think we have her all figured out now what we're going to do when she's dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the start now, how, how to figure out how what to do in that space between you know, where, where we're, we know we're dying. We know it's our last chapter, how we want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in my family, especially because of what I do, you know, we talk about all that stuff. That's and, awesome. So, most definitely. So thanks for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Lots and right. lots of good information. And so, and you have a good rest of your day. My pleasure, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice.